Ruiz. making sense considered by many to be the best concert film ever um how did you connect with uh jonathan demi for for that i'm not exactly sure how that connection was made um he was a fan and i think he came out and saw the show which was basically visually really fairly identical to what you see in Stop Making Sense that we put on every night. Um, I mean, that was the design of the stage show. Uh, and I think that one of the enduring uh, qualities of that film is that the lighting effects were very straightforward and simple, just artistically and cleverly done. So there was nothing that was, you know, it was around the time maybe that the beginning of Vera lights had started, you know, the, the, the lights that move and can follow that are ubiquitous now. But we didn't use any of the of those sort of new inventions, you know, a slide projection, a, you know, lights shining up from the bottom, handheld lights and someone walking around. All these things were much more something that could have been designed for something that happened in 1930. Maybe not the rear screen projection as effectively, but basically it, it had, it, it was classic. So therefore it was of no particular time. I think that's one of the reasons it endures. And that, you know, I mean, our, my goal, one of my goals with it was that we were going to sort of take our place alongside the Rocky Picture Show as something they could play every weekend at a movie theater. It was really essential from my point of view, which everyone agreed on, that there'd be no talking. Because I'd seen so many film documentaries that were great, that right in the middle of, you know, there's like a film about Jimi Hendrix, and right as he's about to take some amazing solo, you have two guys that like went to high school with him talking. It's like, I am interested in this, but I wanted to hear that song all the way through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you look at great things like Monterey Pop and stuff like that, but most of them you don't get the whole song. And so we, we, we want it to be that you get the whole song. And that you. It's not about the mixture of the storytelling, it's about the concert. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, then that meant that people could dance to it. They weren't being interrupted by some sort of narrative that they needed to stop and listen. Also, the sound was so good. The material was great. Everyone, you could see everyone was enjoying themselves so much in, in producing that music. Yeah, that well, that band was a very, all three of those bands, the, the Stop Making Sense Tour, the Speaking in Tongues Tour, and the Rain and Light Tour, which each had sort of slight, slightly different personnel, 
they were joyous affairs. I mean, we were, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, there's that uh, Hemingway book of a movable feast, but we were a movable party. And, you know, it didn't matter if we were in a small town when we could all go out together. It's like we took over whatever bar we were in or whatever club we went to because there were, you know, with the people in the crew, there were, I don't know, nearly 20 of us or something like that if everybody went out. And so we just had a, a, such a fun time. And um, some of the most enjoyable times ever really were, were on those tours just because of the great camaraderie and, and also a recognition that we were really at our peak. That was like we were certainly among the best bands in the world at that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it was a, really a shame that we didn't perform and be a part of Live Aid. I pushed very hard for us to do that because you th- you see that really the growth of you 2 and Peter Gabriel and a few other people that just hit it right on the nose with Live Aid. And they also could talk coherently about um, social issues. And these were all things that we could have we could have done. And I think that we had if we continued touring and played that, we would have become a gigantic touring act at that moment. And but David had already started thinking about doing the movie True Stories. And so he didn't he, he was not interested in the dist- the distraction of doing yet another concert. Mm-hmm. And I also think there was an element that Stop Making Sense was so successful that it, that we weren't, I think, and maybe Dave felt this more than we did. We, we, we talked about doing tours for little creatures where we would have had a much smaller band play it because we didn't need to have such a big band. I mean, again, little creatures was very deliberately a different kind of music. Uh, it sort of grew out of what David had been, David had been writing the songs for True Stories and Little Creatures were songs that sort of came up but didn't fit the movie. Um, but it was very Americana and a very, instead of being African, it was Americana. And it was, we could do it much, much come much more closely to performing all of it with just a four piece band and maybe a little additions. And we talked about doing a tour where we would, you know, set up and do a week or two in major cities and, you know, you know, two weeks in San Francisco and a week or so in Chicago, two weeks in LA and two weeks, you know, not be grinding it out, but also be able to set up theaters a little bit more uh, completely because we had the time of repeat performances, but that never happened. Well, I was a DJ throughout the 80s and the crowds could not get enough of of some of those tracks from uh, Little Creatures. Yeah. They were very accessible earworm kind of tracks, you know? They they very much were. And um, that was, was, well, the beginning of us working and me working in particular, because I continue to work with with Eric E.T. Thorngren, who actually we were introduced to by Chris Blackwell. And E.T. and I largely mixed the record for Stop Making Sense. David was down in Texas getting ready to thinking about true stories and Chris and Tina were coming back and forth between the Bahamas and New York. But so I was the only person from the band who was there every night. And we mixed that one summer and uh, going from studio to studio because everything had been booked. 
sometimes being in, at the studio that was that Sealy Dan liked to use. It was right under the Studio 54 uh, Soundworks, I think it was called, and then Sigma Sound in various places going back and forth. But he then engineered True Stories and Little Creatures. Interestingly, True Stories had been written, the songs, by the time we had completed Little Creatures. So when we were mixing Little Creatures, we set up in the room and rehearsed the basic tracks for True Stories. And then when we would finish a mix, we would record a song or two and then go back to mixing. And then we would rehearse the next songs we were going to do. So when we went, went to finish True Stories, it was like a year later when the movie was largely largely complete and then we did those videos that were we were in the movie um like wild wildlife and uh, love for sale and we had made the decision i think chris and tina and i that we didn't we did we were a little bit afraid of being characters in the movie because we didn't want to put ourselves in the position that david was in the position of being our director and we thought that that would undermine a little bit of uh, the sort of what you what we had as a band where we were sort of all for one and one for all. And, you know, but of course, by this time, some of the frictions had become had become known. And of course, we had never went on to do another tour together. But I think we made, you know, Maybe is not as uh, um, crown-breaking records as our first five. But Little Creatures, True Stories, and particularly Naked, which I think is very underrated, are really good records. Little Creatures, a lot of people know because they're just songs that are well-known to people. But Naked has a lot of interesting stuff on it. Not it was ambitious. Naked was ambitious, I thought. Yeah, and again, it was a, it was a return to trying to write it, the speaking in tongues. Uh, remain in light method but adding we made it in paris the basics and we added we worked with wally batteru who we knew from the uh, from the bahamas and he knew all of these african musicians who came in and so we had this sort of moving you know this today this person's gonna come and play with us and this you know and it was great fun that way you know we recorded you know that, what was interesting about that is that we were sometimes recording with a rhythm section that was eight or nine people. Wow. So much was finished. It was almost doing what we did in, by uh, accretion in Remain in Light all at once. Not that we never did any overdubs or anything like that, but it was, uh, it was fascinating. Um, and, and fun, fun just to be living in Paris and recording there. And, you know, so I think that because the presence of Talking Heads without us doing any touring was beginning to um, to wane a little bit. And, you know, David was releasing Ray Momo and then Chris and Dina, you know, there, it was the attention was becoming split because without us having a tour to help focus people. So what would I don't think that Naked ever got quite the attention that it perhaps deserved. What, what, what do you think was the root of the tension, if you can't speak to that at all? Well, 
I would say that once David had made true stories, to make true stories, he ended up having the true stories office where he was ending up with help from other people, hiring other people that was outside of the talking heads business, outside of the talking heads, um, um, being sort of co-conspirators or actually it also being uh, collaborators, really collab, you know. And so, and then he, he was, David was put on the cover of Time Magazine as this Renaissance man. And I think he just got, he enjoyed having that control of having his own office and he didn't have, being in a band is a little bit like being married to everybody. It's also like having the people that, who it's sort of like having the same people around you that you went to uh, high school with or something like that. Yeah, you can always tell like in, when you see people that have become famous, that the people that seem to have their heads screwed on right or something like that, or, or don't get overly infatuated with their own success, are very often the people who keep someone around who knew them when they were did foolish things. Mm -hmm. And people who only have all the new friends that are part of the people that could be useful to me and are part of the, the scene of famous people, very often be, can become so, so self-absorbed in their own success that sometimes they make gigantic mistakes or do embarrassing projects. I think you really, you know, um, like as brilliant as, as uh, say Prince is, Under the Cherry Moon, that film is just so embarrassing. I mean, the song Kiss is great, but the film is just like, you know, it's him going off on a tangent of being romantically a French new wave director and, it just seems silly to me. Well, he, he also later did the Graffiti Bridge, which was even probably worse. Yeah. And I, I'll never forget when he said, um, I learned uh, that, I ha that I can't have others direct what I wrote. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I think that there's a natural conservative nature to bands that if, if everyone in the band is, so I always liken it to being a secret society that it, it may not be democratic, but it's almost like anybody can blackball something. And a lot of times someone just goes like that. This is just too far. Now that's, that's like, you know, I remember there were times where David and I wanted to do things and Chris didn't want to explore a certain kind of drumming or something like that. And it was frustrating. So I think David felt that tension of his creative mind wanting to try things and he, he he had gotten a taste of being able to just direct everything himself and you know we were we had a good 10 years and i mean i think it's ridiculous that we have never done another tour because i know that there's so many people that would really enjoy it and i'm you know and i think that when we played at the when we did reform to play at the rock and roll hall of fame which now is you know, early 2000s. So it's going to be 20 years ago in a little while. Um, the, that we, every, everyone in the audience is like, why don't they just keep going? Because everyone just loved it. And 
So I think we all knew that we could do it at any time. And obviously we were, we were offered silly amounts of money. So it would have, you know, it would have paid for a lot of kids or grandkids to go through college. So, you know, you sort of work your life to wanting to be in a situation like that. And uh, it's too bad it didn't happen. But, you know, on the other hand, I don't know if I would have ever spent the time and become as successful a record producer had Talking Heads just continued. Before that, I was just fitting, producing in between, trying to do solo records, Talking Heads records, and tours. But you had a pretty good hit of your own with uh, Rev It Up, right? I did, I did, yeah. yeah. And, but the tour for that, I ended up spending $100,000 of my own money to to have the quality band I wanted to have. So that was not exactly something I could keep duplicating every year, especially without Talking Heads going on tour and making money. So I think when I did Walk on Water, there was, which has some fantastic songs on it. There were just, the only tour I did for that was one with Chris and Tina on the Escape from New York tour, which was with the Ramones and Debbie Harry. But it didn't have the sense of being Though we were playing, we did a great deal of the songs from that record. It didn't have the intimacy to the audience to help build an audience for that record. Mm-hmm. And there were there were other things that happened with the record company. Someone who was a big champion and fan of the record promotion man who was going to help me, who suddenly went into rehab, mm-hmm. like the week it came out. It's funny how it's always the musician's fault that it's not a success when there's these things that happen within companies. You go, and why is it my fault when your people fell down? (laughs) And someone might go, you're right. You're still off the label. We've dropped you. (laughs) We've lost too much money or whatever, you know. So, but yeah, that was fun. And and Rev It Up up to this day is like a a real crowd pleaser. And I'm really proud, you know, you're always, you have the songs that you're the most proud of. I mean, Man With A Gun is another one of them. Well, I think a lot of those songs too that you did on your own, it becomes very clear sort of like the influence that you had on the Talking Heads because you you can hear the common threads through some of it. So it's very interesting from that perspective. I I think so too. And I think that, you know, you know, as I said, it was a real challenge having been in a band with both David Byrne and Jonathan Richmond, who were two of the most unique lyricists of the last 50 years. It was really, I was really self-conscious about lyrics. It's funny, it's like I've helped bands I'm producing write lyrics. I did a record with with Live, who, as you know, I've did a number of, I've done when they had a new singer this record is probably really hard to find now it's called the uh the turn and but i and my daughter and i ended up writing a lot of lyrics on that record because the singer and the the new singer didn't write lyrics that felt like live lyrics and so and it was much easier to write lyrics to a degree for somebody else than yourself so some of those lyrics, I'm like, wow, that, I'm really proud of that. That one's really great. But I'm not sure it's like I would have sung it. A few of them would. So anyway, yeah, but those, yeah, that was, Casual Gods was a real, 
you know, it had sustaining power, and uh, it, 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 I was really happy with it. Um, Walk on Water, I felt the pressure of trying to have a band, you know, and have it, like, be in, to have it soon enough to follow up the other record. And then there were, there were feelings from the various people in record companies that there wasn't a hit yet, and then it delayed the release. So any momentum from the record before it was starting to get lost. It was sort of frustrating that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I can only imagine. I, I, I did want to ask you about one other 80s project that we didn't touch on. That was the Five Minutes uh, right. record. Uh, you know, you worked uh, somehow connected with Bootsy Collins on that one. and Yeah, I had basically, I had written the entire thing. And I had gotten the the tape of, of Reagan speaking. So I had written everything, but we th I remember the engineer going like, we need, we need something, some pizzazz on this. How about Bootsy? So I called up Bernie and got Bootsy's phone number and called him. And it was very funny. His manager was lived in Chicago. Bootsy, I think he still lives around Cincinnati. And his manager goes, well, Bootsy is addressing the House of Representatives right now. And we were rushing to have this out in time for the elect, you know, have some <laughs> needed effect on the election. And so he goes, he doesn't like to fly. So I would get these sort of like twice a day updates from his manager, things like, well, Bootsy just crossed the Maryland border. He's stopping to sleep for a few hours. But he'll be there. And so he had arrived with his manager. And we, uh, I think we went down and cut it. And I don't know, in two takes. Went up and had dinner. He went up, he went out to the Holiday Inn and went to sleep and left the next morning. But uh, it's a, it's a, it was a, you know, it it, it was uh, it it remains a really uh, interesting piece of music, and it was one of the first things of basically just sampled music being the total lead vocal, like that of being those excerpts from Ronald's off mic comments about bombing Russia, and yeah, I ended up getting audited I, the next year. I got the ult. I got the ultimate audit from the from the uh, IRS. The one that's supposed to be, the one that's supposed to be really totally random. It's interesting. <laughs> did not have did not have much effect on the election though. <laughs> but I remember I got caught up by I got called by Nestle Erdogan, Ahmet's brother, who goes, "This is brilliant, but you know we can't put this out." The, polit the politics of this are just too strong. I love it. So I finally put it out. Arthur Russell had a label with Will Sokoloff called Sleeping Bag Records. And, uh, Will Sokoloff's record uh, parents had been communists. So he didn't have much fear of putting the record out. But it, didn't, it meant it got very little distribution. And I love the video that was made from, from it that took all these images from Atomic Cafe, a film, actually, that I knew the film director, Kevin Rafferty, he had gone to, he was at Harvard when I was there. But uh, he used to play at a dance area. It was really great. 
Did you ever consider uh, more than just a one-off with that project, or it was always just going to be the one? I mean, with Bootsy, with Bootsy? Yeah. Um, well, I just didn't know Bootsy well enough to go into to do that. Um, it would have, you know, if there had been something with Bernie, there was a point where Bernie and I was going to have a duo. But the whole songwriting issue with it, Bernie, as talented as he was as a musician, wasn't usually a, a composer in a, in a song, as a songwriter. And so he needed the right collaborators around him when he did that. And, you know, obviously he and George worked really, really well together. I think George had a, like a, a hair salon out in Plainfield, and that's how they met. And Bernie had, had, had to leave the New England Conservatory of Music early because I think his father died uh, sort of um, without warning and he had to come home and help take care of his mother. And then he was met, met uh, so to speak, met, met George at the barber shop. And, and they all moved to Detroit and the rest is history. It's like, and what a body of work they did. I mean, there's, of course, there's so many records they made under all of the different na all the different titles of. Yeah. Uh, and and George is still out there. To, uh, well, when they were allowing touring, still touring. Yeah, I saw him play at uh, Tippentinas a few years ago, which was it was great. Um, unfortunately, there there became some real enmity between George and particularly and Bernie, and particularly Bernie's wife, because she felt that he had taken uh, advantage of Bernie. Mm. And. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that, you know, Bernie, Bernie really was a co-writer of almost every, I mean, he was the musical director of the band. It was really, and unlo but unlike Bootsy, he didn't, he, although he made a couple of solo records and could sing, he didn't have the lead singer personality. He was, he was, he was, uh, he, he was more interested in being the sort of maestro behind the scenes, so to speak. Well, you mentioned Jerry earlier about him sort of being more in the mold of like the you know ELP and you know those kinds of players, mm. but I'm, I'm saying that he had the technique to do that, but not certainly. You know, he could play classical music just like they could. You know, he was not, but but what he did with like sort of the coloring of yes. the music and the tonal elements and those things—that's what was incredible to me. Absolutely, a real master of the Moog synthesizer. And, you know, the Moog synthesizer at that time, unless you got the, uh, there was, that was the beginning of sequential circuits. And Dave Smith's first product was a thing that had memories for the Moog synthesizer so that you could have presets. And, you know, so if every night you had to dial up your sound, I mean, that's one of the things you find about analog synthesizers is the difference between the dial being at four and 4.1 can sometimes be extreme. Same thing with a guitar amp. Guitar amps, they're really weird. They like act like they have even volume from one to 10, but it's not that way. It's like nothing, nothing, then it's on. And then a huge volume changes between say two and four, and then much less than, than tapering off. So, you know, if you're any place in that line, the place where you got your tone is this really, finely calibrated number. 
kind of like director scale. It's exponential sometimes. Um, yeah, but except that it doesn't continue. It's only within that, like a little gap. And so, somewhat the same in synthesizers. There's a place like in filters where they really change from one thing to another in a very small amount of movement of the dial. So Bernie would just dial up this, the sounds every night and come up with something he wanted to do. You mentioned about your uh, prodigious production, you know, yeah. since uh, the heads uh, disbanded. Yeah. And um, what is it that you enjoy about that, Jerry? And how would you characterize your approach to production? Well, one of the great things I enjoy is that you get to work on music that maybe you couldn't make yourself. I mean, working on a band that's sort of country influenced or this kind of influence that you feel like you have a role that you can really help make a really great record, but you can't imagine yourself writing those songs or singing those songs. And I, my my approach was to usually, I, I think I sort of started by doing bands that were um, on the outside, so to speak. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons that, you know, the reason that I think I ended up being the producer of the Violent Femmes is that I was from Milwaukee, they were from Milwaukee. And I think that they understood that if I, having worked with Jonathan and, and having worked with David, that working with Gordon, who many people found to be unusual, I mean, was would be just right up my alley, which it was. They unfortunately were somewhat at odds with each other when we did their record, and in fact, they ended up breaking up right in the middle of the tour, just as the record was starting to do well, which was really unfortunate. Um, but I generally feel that I like to sort of draw. I I I always listen to the songs that people have done, but I always there's you know I do. I think a lot of times that I've kind of pushed them sometimes there's not, to sometimes write a little more. Sometimes it needs another part to the song or it needs something. Not everything can get by with one group. I mean, Gloria is an exception, but there's only a few songs that get by just being so consistently at one place or just two places. You know, you think of these beautifully crafted songs like say that Elton John does or, you know, even like Kurt Vile and they, you know, they have a little more complicated structure, which allows the, the songwriter, as well as the lyricist, to go different places. And you think about the, what we call the bridge of the song and the English call the middle eight. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, if the verses are setting out the story and the choruses are sort of a reflection on the whole song, the bridge often, steps aside and has a different point of view of what's going on. You know, you'll very often have a story that progresses from, I mean, we'll take an obvious one like uh, something else, the Eddie Cochran song, where it's like he sees a girl that's meant, you know, and then by the end of the song, he's worked through getting a car and doing all these things, and now he's dating the girl. And so songs very often have this sort of progression from desire to maybe fulfillment or from or something becoming ruined and the the choruses are the things that sort of encapsulate the whole the whole thing in which hopefully the audience will join in on or at least mentally it, it is resonating within them but this 
this other section with different chords and a different feel to it often is sort of almost like a narrator giving you background on the story or something and and, and adds a depth to the uh, whole songwriting process. So a lot of times I would push the bands I was working with to include that kind of elements in that. And then in the studio, I my philosophy was to try and draw the best performances out of everyone in the band and also try to make, even when someone was obviously maybe the weakest player in the band, and, and often it was sometimes fighting off the the uh, the um, impatience of, we'll say, the leader of the band who was maybe more proficient or, and because I felt that like the, the, the whole band had to go out and sell the record when they went on tour and had to believe that they were, it was theirs. And so I always thought it was great if they could, at some point they could all be part, there for the mix. Cause I mean, an easy thing would be like a drummer saying, you know, in the fill coming out of verse three, I think the the rack time, you can't hear it. And you know, the mixing engineer would go and push it up and he goes, do you like that better? And he goes, oh, it's so much better. And probably to most of the people listening to this, it wouldn't have made any difference at all. But to that person, that attention to detail, that person that they, that they uh, help make it better, gave them an ownership of the mix. And I felt it was important for, because I mainly did bands, not, into, not, not solo artists, was for the, everyone in the band to feel it was their record, you know, and that they had something to be proud of and they had been included. So I, I was pretty democratic that way. And I always tried to create, I always tried to find inexpensive places to record so that we had enough time, very often working with bands that had really interesting ideas, but maybe were not always the most proficient at their, at their instruments. So I wanted the time when Pro Tools came along, some of the uh, meant time to be doing some editing, which was extremely laborious back then. And I also kind of, I think I was a pioneer in the idea of having the mixers that you would hire to do the singles. I wanted them to do the whole record. So I particularly for a long time would have Tom Lord Algae mix the records I did and he mixed the whole record. So you, I'd, build a, I'd build a budget around leaving room to spend that much money on the mix. Previously, people would have the engineer who did the record would mix it. Before there was automation, you often did five, six mixes in a day, sometimes a whole album in a day. Strangely, when automation came along and you thought that would simplify things because the computer could do it, it just made it much more difficult because you could save all sorts of, of variations. And Alex Sadkin, who worked on uh, Speaking in Tongues with us, fantastic engineer, and then went on to be quite a successful producer. He was saying he was working with Duran Duran and he ended up doing a mix or there was a mix for, uh, for every person in the uh, in the band, and like one song took a month. And from that point on, he said, "I'm not using automation anymore. I can't stand this. I can't stand this." 
trying to, oh, it's got to be this mixture of these things. I just want it to be a feel of just happened in time. Uh, I don't know how I got sidetracked on that, but I always, anyway, so I, that would have to do with how I, how I structured my production. I wanted to give people time that they could explore their ideas. <laughs> I was saying, uh, Jerry, that's certainly a diverse group of uh, folks that you have produced. Um, yes. One that kind of is a little of an anomaly to me is Kenny Wayne Shepherd. How did you get connected with him? Um, I had produced Big Head Todd and the Monsters for Giant, and particularly for Jeff Aldrich, who was the A&R person. And we had done that version of Boom, 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 where I had gotten John Lee Hooker to come in and perform on it. Um, and so Jeff was the A&R person for Kenny, and he played him that mix, and he said, I think this is who should do your next record. And so that's how it began. And I was, I had played in blues bands in high school and there was quite a blues scene in Milwaukee being so close to Chicago. So even though it totally did not inform what I did with the Modern Lovers and the Talking Heads, it certainly was something I knew about and was familiar with and loved. So I found it really exciting and working with Kenny has been a real education in some of the things that, like I go back sometimes and I listen to sometimes like some of the English blues records or something like John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, which I loved when I was in high school and in college. And I see how it doesn't have the swing of the shuffle that the original did, or it, it, it's, I have a much more finely tuned sense of the blues now, having worked with Kenny and Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon and just people who live and breathe it. And we made a great record. I mean, you know, Blue on Black is just as an extraordinary success as a single. I mean, it was the longest running single in active rock maybe ever, something like, you know, 35 weeks or something like that. Mm. And now it became a success again with, what is it, Five Finger Death Punch. And, uh, but I, that's what I, I, you know, what was funny though is once I did live, I had done something that was so commercially successful that I became, started getting much more commercial bands. And I stopped not, I stopped having quite so many of the quirky, unusual bands that I'd been doing before. Bands like Poy Dog Pondering and, uh, and, you know, I would have loved to have worked with Peter Gabriel or something, you know, I mean, you could, you know, I never got back into the scene of the sort of more avant-garde music because I was, had had these sort of major hits with Crash Test Dummies and, and, uh, and Throwing Copper in particular. Well, Kenny Wayne Shepherd definitely uh, an antithesis to those that don't play their instruments that well, like you were yes. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I was just, we were just listening to a few songs last night, and I put on Blue and Black, and like the guitar, it just feels like filled with electricity. It's like you just it, you just hear the first lick, and you just feel like oh, it's like it gives you a shiver. Yeah, uh, he's a wonderful player, and uh, you know. I've done quite a few records with him and we have a nice partnership and it's, he's been great. 
Um, you know, I, you know, certainly live and Kenny Wayne Shepherd are the are the people who I've done the most consistent and constant work with. Mm-hmm. Most of the other albums were one-offs, or you know, at most two. But they were such, you know, being able to work with the Foo Fighters and do a single with them, and you know, work with. Have you ever heard this record I did with the Butcherettes called By Mental? Very different again. Butcherettes. And then, have you have you seen the movie Take Me to the River about Memphis music? I was really involved with that and about getting the music to sound right. Which is all it's about it's all it's about classic Memphis R&B artists and then often Memphis rappers who had never didn't even know he existed they existed being brought into the studio and performing together. It's a really it's really unique music documentary. It's it's really wonderful. We'll check that out for sure. Yeah, and the music on it's amazing. The album for it's great. It's an album that people who it's almost like people if you remember like vinyl is the only thing you go, you listen to this record and you go, ah, that's what I remember in records. What I liked so much about it. It has that sort of, I don't know, classic sound that way, which was a challenge. You know, again, that was something working with ET that we were able to get use modern tools but not, still take it back to having that sort of holistic sense that records from an earlier age have so never say never right or should we say never for a reunion well i think with david's success well first of all we're gonna have to get through the idea of having live music concerts and uh you know, David's had quite a bit of success with this show on Broadway, so, you know, I'm certainly not holding my breath. I'd say never, but maybe some, you know, it would take something unusual to, I think, convince David that it was a better idea than just doing things himself. But it would think be there's, is there anything in the can anywhere that you haven't seen surface? Um... There is something that I found, but I'm not gonna. That I will see if I can uh, try to get it together for that. But I'm going to leave it on as a mystery. So something maybe to look forward to. Yeah. And uh, what's next for you, Jerry? What What do you think? Uh, I know there's a lot of unknowns right now in terms of maybe studio work coming up. Well, you know, I was getting ready for this tour. <laughs> which was supposed to start at the beginning of May. So really just around the corner. So that was what was next. So now I'm not sure. I've started a couple of companies. I'm doing all these other things. I have a, a company that we have an, we have a antidote for snake bites, which basically humans kill. I mean, mosquitoes kill the most people. Humans are next and after that it's snakes. Snakes kill 125,000 people every year, maim nearly a million people. And it's been ignored. The treatment for snake bite is the same treatment that they had starting in the 1880s. And yet it is this, snakes kill more people than all neglected tropical diseases combined once you take away malaria. So 
that seems is you know that I've been working on that for about seven years, I think now. Hmm. You know, it's going through the FDA and all of this stuff. It's a it's it's a gigantic undertaking. Wow. I'm happy to say that we've been making progress on that. Um, there's a documentary film that you can see parts of on YouTube called Minutes to Die, if anyone wants to check that out. Yeah. And I and also I've been involved with you know, I started this company, GarageBand.com. Eventually, Apple bought or leased the name for their music program, but that became iLike, which was the invention of crowdsourcing. So I've been involved with a number of startups around San Francisco. One of the great things about that is it sort of forced me to re bring up, bring back my scientific mind that sort of had been put on hold when I was so pursuing only things in music. Yeah, it sounds like you've become a bit of a renaissance man in your, you know, recent and later years. Yeah, I, well, thank you. Um, well, I do think that one of the most important things is to keep your mind active and to keep yourself excited. I think I, partially because of starting garageband.com, I think that that kind of got in the way of my career as a music producer because I ended up not only spending time on starting the company, but I started, this is like in the late nineties. I also produced two records for that company that then never came out. And sort of as a producer, you know, you're only as good as your last hit, so to speak. And one of the great things about it being a producer rather than being an artist is, you know, that, you know, back then it was usually you would blame it on the record company, but that things can happen, that great records get missed and they don't have the success they deserve either because money wasn't spent on them or the zeitgeist changed and something became so, um, people became so obsessed with it, there wasn't room and maybe a few years later it gets rediscovered. Um, so it's very nice as a producer to do three or four records every year rather than doing one every year or two that you do as a solo artist. Because, you know, I, I think to a degree Walk on Water never got the attention it could have gotten. And then it became very, very hard to sort of continue as a solo artist without any momentum. Mm -hmm. and so being a producer was nice because especially when I was getting artists, especially when I was getting artists that were sort of in part of the, the possibility of them being a success, the, the record companies believed in them when we we're going to spend money on them. That you, you knew that one or two of them really people would know about. It's very frustrating to work on productions that end up being really good, but nobody ever gets to hear them. And frankly, I think also that the element of what startup culture became here in San Francisco, and in some ways that became the sort of zeitgeist instead of music. I think music's become the background of our lives. You know, it's the soundtrack to our lives, not something that we look to to lead us in our thinking. Whereas when I started, it was really music was the leader of the of the culture, even more than films. I mean, to me, like the Beatles and Rolling Stones were more important than Kennedy. 
you know it was like they and bob dylan they made they like they they forced us to think about things i don't see that anymore i mean you know there's an occasional artist who really they write good songs and they write you know other things like this but it's also the way people listen to music it's like if you're listening on you know bluetooth earpods and stuff like that an mb you know streaming all of these things are degrading the depth with which you can hear into the music mm -hmm. i mean we all you know we all went through listening through jukeboxes and am car radios which had their own way of not letting you hear all the detail i just don't see people um sort of basing their lives around the musicians that they have a, a you know they find for inspiration in the way that they did before and now you know whereas i think that sometimes for a while it was like people were basing it around the technologies they had found now that's over now 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 to a degree the <clears throat> the entrepreneurs coming up with something new you you know it's sort of like the dark side of facebook or the dark side of twitter has come out and so they know you know they're still fascinating and it's still, I mean, one of the things, that, and I, I said this to my kids, is that one of the things I really like about San Francisco is people still feel, I'm going to think of something that people never had thought of before, and it's going to insinuate itself into people's life, and people are going to just wonder how they lived without it, and that's how I'm going to make money. It's very different than, you know, people aspiring to becoming a, working for an investment bank bank back New York, in New York where because I'm going to think of a way to downsize this company and sell off the assets and it doesn't matter if we lay off everybody in the company but I'm going to get rich and that's it seems like such a oh I don't know negative view um you know you may have a very comfortable life but like you're not really adding anything to the world or the society you know, and like trying to come up with things that are adding something. So that's one of the okay. things that's really satisfying, say, about the name of the company is Ophirix, the snake bite company. So if we succeed in this, um, you know, we're going to completely change the lives of particularly people, poor farmers in India and Africa and stuff like that, who live in utter terror of this. And if they get bitten by a snake, they'll it could be a lifetime of their savings, like if their daughter or son gets bit, to pay for the treatment. Hmm. So they put themselves in hock for at best years, and if not, a lifetime. And then if anyone else gets bit, they don't have the money to pay for it. And this would change all of that. Well, good luck with that. Continue. Thank uh, you. I hope that uh, that tour comes to fruition, you know, and that maybe you come to North Carolina it wouldn't be a bad thing. I think it would be great. I have a good friend, Joyce Bowden, who lives, I think, in, in uh, Chapel Hill. And she's saying in my, in the touring band for Casual Gods and sang on uh, a lot on uh, Walk on Water. Wonderful singer. Jerry, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time and for sharing those stories. And thanks for all the great music, too. Well, I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm 
lives and breathes and thrives. Also goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing, all coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the funkinstuff.net website, and on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also drop me a line, email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>